Okay, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8. And I do want to take just a moment to thank everybody that's coming in on Saturday evening and setting up the chairs. That has been such a blessing to Pastor Joyce and I to have that chore taken care of. It is a huge, huge uh, blessing to us. So I want to thank everybody that's involved in doing that. Um, really, it does help. helps a lot. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to do things a little differently this morning. Um, we have been, as is usually our, our pattern here, uh, working through the Apostles' letter roughly one chapter at a time, or at least a paragraph at a time. Uh, this morning we're going to hone in on just one word. We're going to focus on just a single word, and it's a key in what Paul has said throughout these last two chapters and looking ahead to chapter 10. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, the word is really, really central to that. It's found throughout the New Testament. It's not exclusive um, to this letter, but its greatest relevance is here. Uh, it's certainly used more frequently here uh, than anywhere else. So um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at just that one word. So I uh, just want to kind of choose one of the passages it's chosen, and just as a starting point. So we'll roll back to chapter 8, where we were a couple of weeks back. Uh, verses 10 through 12. Paul writes this way, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, we thank you that you have... Um, Father, you have condescended to speak to us, Father, through the language of humanity. What an incredible thing that is, Lord, that eternal truths, uh, truths born in the heart and mind um, of the eternal God, uh, distilled down into the language of humanity. That's a marvelous, marvelous thing, Father. Um, but even at that, we need your help, Father, as we read it, as we um, look to it, Father, as we absorb it. So we ask that you, by your Spirit, would guide everything that is said and done uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The word that we're looking at this morning is the word sinidesis. Sinidesis, right? And it's usually translated as conscience. Conscience, that's how it's normally translated. And conscience is a word that I think we're all pretty familiar with. We, uh, we say somebody has a good conscience, or we say somebody has a bad conscience, or they don't have a conscience, um, or, we, or we, we say to our kids, do that, you're going to have guilty conscience, you know. So all kinds of ways we use this, and we got a, a pretty good idea um, of what it means. Um, but if asked to define it, that's a little bit harder. And of course, certainly we want to know what Paul had in mind when he used this word, sinidesis, that we translate as conscience. So the first thing we want to do is figure out what the word that Paul used actually meant, sinidesis, and then figure out how he intended to use it in this letter, and finally ask the question, how does it impact us? So first, what does um, synesthesis mean? And, and I'll just apologize right off the bat. We're going to get a little technical here, the kind of stuff that those of us who study the, the language and study Scripture, I hope we're all <laughs> students of Scripture, right? Uh, it's going to be a little technical, but just bear with me. I, I really think it'll be, it'll, be worth, it'll be worth the investment. So what does the word mean? Well, the word goes way, way back. Uh, some of the earliest Greek playwrights and poets used it. The famous historian Herodotus used it. Uh, it's most famously known uh, in that well-known quote 
by um, Plato. Some say Socrates said it. We don't know. But either Socrates or Plato said, I know that I know nothing. How many have heard that one? Uh, if you go shopping in the, in the tourist section of Athens, you find it all over the t-shirts. I know that I know nothing, you know. Actually, a better translation of what either Socrates or Plato said was that I am conscious that I have no wisdom, either great or small. I think probably because it's harder to put that on a t-shirt that we have distilled it to, I know that I know nothing. But that's that word synesis. And like a lot, of, uh, a lot of Greek words, it's made up of two words. That's what they did a lot. Um, Scene, which means to bring together, like our English word synthesis, to see things or breathing, bring things together. Uh, and it literally means to see or perceive things together, to bring things together. Together, And I think we know that kind of instinctively relative to conscience. You know, when we do something that we know to be wrong, when we're doing it, it's okay, right? It's only after we've done it and that voice of conscience speaks up and goes, you shouldn't have done that, or if we don't do what we're supposed to do, it's okay, until afterwards when that voice in our head goes, you should have done that, that's when we feel the angst. You know, or we say feel guilty. That's when we feel that inner tension. It's when, it's when what we know to do and what we did actually come together. It's, it's a lot more when we say to know together. It's a lot more than simple data or simple knowledge that we may pull together in our head. Um, the way I would liken it is I think most of us have either a chess set or some board game at home that has pieces. And when you're not using it, you know, you, you put them in the box or maybe you, you, know, you put them in a bag and so they won't, you won't lose them, right? Well, when those pieces, you think about chess pieces, when they're in the bag, what really are they? They're just, you know, random pieces of plastic or marble or metal. And yeah, you know, the rook is still a rook, but in the bag, what, is it, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything, right? It's only when you take them out of the bag, take them out of the box, and actually put them on a chessboard. I mean, if I were to hold up just the rook with no board and say, what does this do? It would be kind of hard to explain. Well, it can go straight or sideways. Well, fine. Put it on a board with all the other pieces, and then you can appreciate, oh, well, yeah, this is what it can do. That guy is lethal, right? Or the pawn. He can't do much, you know. But you get an idea of how things work only by putting them together on the board. That's when you see them in relationship. And that's really what synesthesis is, is all about. It's seeing things in, and their function in relationship and their possibilities and the ramifications and all those. That's synesthesis, right? It's seeing things collectively. Another element of synesthesis is time, right? Um, if, when you've ever, you play a, you know, a board game, whether it's chess or anything else, you're not just thinking about that moment. You're thinking about previous games you've played, right? Especially if you're playing the same person, right? Like, what did they do last time? If I did this, how did it work? Well, I'm not going to do that again, right? It brings the element of time. How do things in the past speak to the present situation? It even has a future element. You know, if I do this, something's telling me, bad idea. Or, I, you know, so it brings together past and future into the present. There's that, there's that time faction. Factor, rather. When we look at synesthesis, the word that Paul used, um, and we look at its history, and, and the reason we have to do this, and this one says it gets a little technical, um, I'm not exactly sure how old English is, but when Paul was writing this in Greek, the language is already 1,500 years old. 
so really old language, right? So now it's like 3,500 years old. And over a course of like 30, 1,500 years, let alone 3,000 years, languages change. Word meanings change. Same language meanings change. So one of the challenges we face is, okay, we got this long history and the meanings change. How do we know what it meant right then when Paul used it? Because meanings change, right? And, and I would kind of compare that to as adults, when our kids become adults, we start wondering, what did they look like when they were five years old? I can't be sure. So what do you do? You pull out a photograph. Ah, oh, that's what they looked like when they were five. You look for a snapshot. Well, we look, when we have a language with a long history, we look for like snapshots in the language's history that will tell us, oh, this is what that word meant then, right? And we have that for the New Testament. It's called the Septuagint, which I've referred to before. Most of you know what it is. It was a, he a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was done between the years of about 200 up until Christ's birth. And the reason that they did it, rabbis in Alexandria, Egypt, understood that the Jewish people were losing their understanding of Hebrew because of the whole Alexander the Great thing. And now everybody's speaking Greek. More and more Jews spoke Greek, not Hebrew. So they translated the Old Testament into Greek so that the Jews could read it. Now, we use the Septuagint a lot not to help us understand the Old Testament. We got great translations of the Old Testament. Don't need a Greek translation. It doesn't help us with the Old Testament. But what it does is it gives us a snapshot of the language that the writers of the New Testament were using in a really close time period, right before the New Testament was written. Because we know how the, you know, the scholars have told us what the Old Testament means. We can look at the word in the Old Testament and then go, oh, well, they use this Greek word to say that. Now we know what the Greek word means. So we frequently refer to it as almost like a living dictionary to help us understand the New Testament. Well, in the case of this word, synesis, something else extraordinarily happens. When the writers of the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, did that, they included something else in it. They included the Apocrypha in it. And the Apocrypha, as many of you may know, are a bunch of like religious books that we do not consider inspired, like, you know, First and Second Maccabees, and they're very interesting, got some wild stuff in them, right? They added that in Greek to the Old Testament text, right? Those books were written in that same like 400 to 100 block of time, right? when the Hebrew language was being replaced by Greek. And, you know, we think in a language, right? You, think, you and I think in a language, right? You see a furry thing walk across the road, it's got a tail and it's going, <laughs> you think dog. That word comes to mind. We think in a language. Well, as the Jewish people began to think more and more in Greek, they began to think in more and more like the Greeks. You can't, you can't not do that, all right? So the, the Apocrypha, even though it's written by Jewish people for Jewish people, is written from an increasingly Greek mindset. And the reason I say all of that is because when the Hebrew scholars translating Hebrew into Greek for the Septuagint, when they translate the Old Testament, they never use the word synesis. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. When you get to the Apocrypha, it starts to show up. It's used increasingly. When we get to the New Testament, it's used freely. It's used more by Paul in these chapters than in the entire Apocrypha. 
So this word, which we translate conscience, which we think of our conscience, was really of evidently no great concern to Jewish writers. The Jews saw no great concern, no reason to even talk about it. They grew increasingly aware of it and used it more as Greek thinking was, the, was coming into their, into their culture. And by the time of the first century, they're using a lot. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? Well, there's a German scholar, C.H. Uh, Hahn, who writes this about that transition. We're transitioning from Jewish thinking to more Greek thinking as the New Testament's being written. Hahn wrote this. This may be due to a different understanding of human nature. For the Israelites of the Old Covenant, the problem of man's attitude to himself was less significant than that of his attitude to God. He was more concerned with his accountability before God than with exploring his self-consciousness. Wasn't that interested in exploring his own self-consciousness? Think about it in this way. Put, it, put this into one of the dilemmas we face. Any, any, any hard choice you make during the day where you find yourself going, ah, what should I do? Right? And, and, and it becomes a, a matter of moral choice. Right? Anytime, what's the right thing for me to do in this situation? Right? If you're a Jew, what do you have to do? Well, you just go to the law. You got you got the Ten Commandments. You got the rest of the law in Exodus, and you've got you know you've got Leviticus, and you've got Numbers, and you've got Deuteronomy, and all the laws explained. And then you add to that all the rabbinical teaching and the traditions of the elders that Jesus talked about. You get the magic number six thirteen. You may have heard that. That's you know some scholars have counted up all the rules the Jews lived under, and they came up with six hundred and thirteen. But you got 613 rules that should pretty well cover any situation you're going to face, right? And if that doesn't work, what do you do? You go ask a rabbi. Rabbi, I'm facing this situation. What does the law say I should do in this situation? That's, that's the process, right? So it's pretty straightforward. You don't need to look to a conscience because you have specific laws that tell you what should be doing. You want to stay in good standing with God? You want to stay in good standing with the community? Follow the rules. And if you don't know the rules, ask the rabbi. And it's all said and done, right? Do that, you're in good standing. The New Testament comes along and Jesus says, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty much it. Everything's condensed into that. Love your neighbor as yourself. And leaves us to connect the dots, so to speak. We have to go from whatever kind of moral situation, whatever moral challenge I'm facing, whatever difficult situation, we're left with love your neighbor at yourself, figure it out. You or I connect the dots. We have to connect this one thing, love your neighbor. And obviously there's, you know, you don't kill people. That, those dots are pretty easy to connect, you know. You don't commit adultery, those dots are easy to connect. There's some things that are obvious, they're pretty cut and dried. But let's face it, how many times a day are we facing the decision of whether or not to kill somebody? You might want to. But even if there wasn't a rule against it, would you really? Probably not. Right? But there's a, there's a hundred other decisions we make every day that are, are much more challenging, much more real world. How do we do that? How do we get from loving your neighbors yourself to answering these really, really difficult connections? Well... We see it in terms of past experience. We see it in terms of future possibilities, ramifications. We see it in terms of that inner 
synesis. Actually, I made a mistake here, not here. Because synesis, conscience in use, is usually connected with the heart more than with the head. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we, um, as we go on. But for now, let's just say that the role of synesis helps us answer that question of how do we move from love your neighbor to yourself to the actual decisions that we make. There's a freedom in that. I'm not bound by 613 laws. But there's tremendous responsibility in it as well, right? And that responsibility is laid out in, in these different ways Paul uses it. Just go through them quickly. Uh, chapter 8, verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, talking about the issue of eating meat, sacrificed to idols, or maybe sacrificed to idols, but some being accustomed to an idol until now eat food as though it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. The conscience can be defiled, right? Chapter 8, verse 10, For if someone sees you, we've already read this, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will on his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things, sacrificed to an idol. Verse 12, And so by sinning against the brethren, wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Both the nature of conscience, that it may be strong or that it may be weak, and the fact that it's that the sin against that is so significant. It's a sin against Christ. Uh, looking here at the chapter 10, verse 25, eat anything sold in the marketplace without asking questions for excuse me, for conscience sake. And then 27 through 29 of chapter 10, for if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go and eat anything set before you, do so without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, This meat is sacrificed to an idol, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. And I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? And so for Paul, this is a huge issue. Both the status, or the health, or the well-being of the conscience, and the implication of my actions towards another person. Huge issue, right? And why is it a sin against Christ when I impact somebody else's conscience? Well, when I act in a way that causes a brother or a sister to ignore their conscience and act in a way that is contrary to their conscience, it has a searing, desensitizing effect in it. Paul will write in a later letter of a conscience seared as by a hot iron. What is he suggesting? That the conscience is like living tissue. It's alive. It's sensitive. But it can be desensitized, even killed when it is not listened to, when it's ignored. For the Apostle Paul, conscience is a huge issue. Uh, another thing that helps, again, this issue of the heart. When we find sin and disease in the New Testament, its association isn't with the head, it's with the heart. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, that's not all different goals. There's a singular goal in that statement, and that goal is love. Where does love come from? It comes from pure heart, good conscience, healthy, functioning conscience, and a sincere faith, a faith without hypocrisy, right? A pure heart, a heart that is cl clean and of single purpose, a good conscience, a conscience that's functioning and that's sensitive to the voice of the Spirit, and faith that is genuine, right? Paul connects conscience. Again, what does the word mean? It means to bring things together. We want to keep thinking about that. He connects it with a pure heart. It's not so much the data I hold in my head. It's the ability to pull that all together. And Paul does that happens in the heart. Interestingly, we read this 
in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Luke actually uses this phrase or words like it twice. He says, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Talking about her early experiences with the infant Jesus as Jesus grew up, experiences they shared, things that were said about Jesus. Mary collected all those things. That's what the word treasured means. She collected all those things together. She put them all together, what the word means. Same prefix, that scene prefix. She brought them all together and she considered them in her heart. Right? What was the significance, past, present, future, of what this child meant? That happened in her heart, right? What I find especially significant about that is that Luke is the only gospel writer that references that. Luke is the only gospel writer who came from a Greek perspective. He would have been aware of that, conscious of that, sensitive to that act of drawing things together and evaluating him in the heart, at least more so than the other gospel writers who came from a more Jewish perspective. That idea of bringing things together. What I begin to see when I consider that Luke says this in light of everything else, I think what Luke had was an understanding of the incredible sea change that was taking place for the people of God. Moving from a long list of specified rules to this extraordinary moment when God by His Spirit speaking to us the baptism, the indwelling, the filling of the Spirit, which Paul makes clear in Romans. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit within. Speaking to us, taking that one command, love your neighbor as yourself, and adding the specificity that we need to know how to make the decisions in our life. I think Luke appreciated that sea change. That's why he, was, he, that's why he said that. We begin to see what an extraordinary and invaluable thing that our conscience is, it's so much more than, you know, the little angel sitting on our shoulder like we see in the, in the cartoons or the drawings. It's so much more than that. Oh, it's way more than that. You know, even in the unredeemed mind of an unsaved person, there's still that compelling drive to connect my behavior to what I instinctively know to be right and to be wrong. And for the believer, it's all the more important. Paul makes that abundantly clear in this Corinthian letter. We all have knowledge stuff up here, all the data that we collect, all the information we collect, great, that's marvelous. And I'm not saying we ignore that, but we combine that with what we instinctively know to be right and to be wrong, right? The problem for the Corinthians, at least some of them, they weren't connecting what they knew in their mind to how it impacted others. And as a result, they were leading them to act in ways that compromised or contributed to the compromise of their conscience, and that is folly. To compromise the conscience is folly. So for us, it's really essential that we cultivate and exercise a healthy conscience. It's there. It's a gift. God has put it there. That's never questioned in the text. It's assumed to be there, right? But we are responsible to cultivate it and exercise it that it might be healthy, right? And of course, the first way we do that is through, is through interaction with His Word. And not just the raw knowledge. Memorization of Scripture is phenomenal. But until we pull it down into the heart and begin to actually meditate upon what it means to us, its job isn't done, right? No, we need to ponder it. What, do, what does the book say? 
Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? And that's, again, like Pastor Joyce said during prayer, David was so far ahead of the curve. How David, I don't know. He was so far ahead of the curve. Like, like he'd read the New Testament before it got written. Because he understood. He had a sensitivity to the voice of the Spirit, right? So with the knowledge of his word, through prayer and sensitivity to the voice of the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit within us. That change from 613 laws is not possible without that. That would be chaos, right? And, I think this is one we kind of neglect sometimes, through interaction with the body of Christ. You know, some people will say, the sociologists will tell us that uh, our conscience is a construct of our culture, right? You think so? Of course it is. Of course it is. We are influenced in our thinking, in our valuation by people around us. Tells us that we might want to be careful with who we're around. That's one of the huge questions. What influences, what imports into my conscience? Now, here's the truth. We have to be around ungodly people, right? Otherwise, they're never going to get godly, right? That's part of our job. But when that becomes the predominant influence speaking into our conscience, what happens to our conscience? Begins to weaken and ineffective. But when we're around people of faith and we interact with people of faith, and when we, that's why I love the testimonies. I hear how my brothers and sisters have faced the challenge and how God has answered and made himself present. I love the prayer request because that tells me how the people of God are facing a challenge and how they're interacting with it. It allows my conscience to be informed by things other than just my experience. Because my experience is so limited. Which is, by the way, what Socrates or Plato was trying to say when he said that. As much as I may know, it's so limited. What I become conscious of is what I don't know. How much I don't know. So interaction with other members of the body of Christ is essential to the development of a healthy conscience. So first, by knowledge of his word, then through prayer and the sensitivity to the voice of the spirit that comes out of that, interaction with the body of Christ. And then lastly, perhaps the hardest one, is obedience to its voice. Yeah, I don't want to do that. No, I'm not going to do it, even though I want to do it, because I don't want to. Whatever it might be. Obedience to the voice of the conscience is a, necessar is a necessary element in keeping it healthy, right? So the conscience is the synesthesis, bringing together past, present, future, bringing together all of my experiences, contemplating in my heart, allowing me to respond to that, love your neighbor as yourself. How do I make that work? How do I express that? It's a gift from God. We need to cultivate it. We need to do all that we can to strengthen it that it not be weak. And we need to listen to it. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we, um, Father, as we face a world where there are so many challenges that come our way, Father, every day we face challenges in our families, with our friends, with work, all kinds of situations. And a lot of times we end up with situations where we're not exactly sure what to do. Well, give us the wisdom to look first to you, Father. A lot of times your word just lays it out pretty clear. Sometimes, Father, there's questions left, and you've given us a gift of conscience, Lord. Father, we thank you for the present witness of your spirit in our heart and in our mind, Lord. You, you dwell in us by your spirit, and we know that your spirit is not silent. 
We thank you for that, Father. And our prayer, Father, is that we would be faithful to do the things we need to do to strengthen, develop, and properly inform our conscience that we might be found walking in obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.